Welcome to the Strange and Interesting Podcast, a show about folklore, the paranormal, urban legends, and pretty much anything else I happen to find strange and interesting. I am your host, Al. And joining me today, I've got a guest, Joao, from, and we uh, actually met on a Facebook group called Podcast Nation, which is a, a group that it serves as networking for people who do podcasts. So if you are ever interested in finding guests, or if you want to be a guest, you can post on this group. And uh, Joao had offered to come on to talk about some Peruvian folklore. Thank you very much for joining us today, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Al. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for the shout-out for Podcast Nation. It has been a great way to help uh, connect with others and just share a little bit more about these cultures that are sometimes forgotten, you know? Yeah, and I I think with uh, Peruvian folklore, at least coming at it from, you know, having lived in North America all my life, it's not something that is really taught much in schools. I think when I was in history class, we maybe studied a little bit of some of the South American civilizations like uh, the the Incas and, okay, I'm sure there's others. I just can't quite remember some of the names right now. This is definitely going to be an educational experience for me because it's, like I said, something I'm not familiar with. And, you know, I always certainly enjoy learning about things that I don't know a lot about. Yeah, no, it's always great. And even then, uh, what I'm going to share with you is also limited because even though educational systems here have failed to talk much about it, um, even growing up in Peru, um, I remember we had some like folk stories that we talked about, about the Incas and all the civilizations that you know were before the Incas. Um, but even then, that information was limited. And it, just, it wasn't until I became an adult that I was able to get access to more information about it, really. So before we begin, why don't you introduce yourself? So if you have a, po- a podcast you do, um, if you want to talk a little bit about your background or experience with the, this type of folklore. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, so my name is Joao Vilcasoto. I was born in Peru, and I came to the U.S. about 20 years ago. Um, ever since I came to the U.S., a lot of my focus has actually been in sustainable development. Um, so I study a lot about the environment, how to take care for it uh, as a personal passion of mine. But through that research about how we take care of our environments, um, I came across a lot of uh, situations or circumstances where there was this, like, example of great environmental action happening and uh, a lot of those cases were happening around south america around the places where communities ancient communities were you know still had some kind of an influence which kind of gave me more of an inspiration to to dive deeper into the cultures uh, the cultures that i share as well but that i never really uh, pay much attention to them until until it became more of an environmental fight as well but myself i am uh indigenous uh, to the Peruvian Andes. Uh, my grandparents owned a farm by Lake Titicaca. Um, so geographically speaking, they were part of the Uru uh, group of the uh, Andeans, indigenous Andeans of South America. But the Moche, which is the people that I'm talking about, is more of a culture where, um, of the culture where I grew up in. Um, even though my family and grandparents were from the uh, more of the central mountainous area of Peru, uh, I had to. I grew up in the coast, and the coast is where the Moche actually lived. 
So I was able to visit some of the museums we had down there to learn more about the mocha culture and their uh, practices and their social systems and everything. And um, yeah, I'm excited to talk more about it now too. So in brief, what was the Moche civilization like? Um, could you mention that? So the part of the uh, part of the civilization was closer to the ocean, and then you had another part that was more in the mountainous regions. Now, are they still considered one distinct social group, or are they considered different civilizations? Mm-hmm. So the Moche are the people that were more considered to be the coastal dwellers. Now, I know a lot of their settlements kind of did move a little bit more inward, but uh, primarily they were the ones that were defined as the fishermen. Um, their lifestyle was very, actually quite developed. You know, they had architecture, which they usually made it out of, um, like, um, what's it called? Adobo, which is, sorry, trying to say from Spanish to English, sometimes you forget the words, but it's like... Um, that clay and sand mix. Um, adobe or, or? Yeah, adobe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but they made them out of their homes out of that. They also were making a lot of ceramics out of it as well. And the mochi are most commonly known throughout Peru and uh, the archaeological community for their very intricate ceramics that they have left uh, for us. Um, which is actually one of the few ways which we of which we know so much about the moche because they would create ceramics about their daily lives as well. They have we have representations of them washing their hair, of them um, cooking meals and everything, uh, even he, going through healing practices, and that was all depicted through their ceramics. And another fascinating fact about them too, uh, regarding the fishing that they did, uh, they embarked on this practice which is called. Caballitos de Totora, which means like little horses of Totora. And what the Andeans would do, they would take this plant called the Totora plant, and it would grow along the coast, along waterside. And after growing it, they would harvest it, and they would make these like surfboards, like half surfboards hmm. out of them. And with those, they would embark out into the waters uh, and be able to fish way more easily with that. And that's a practice that's still being used today for a lot of artisanal fishing, too. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I've heard how uh, there were some Pacific cultures that did use surfing boards for for fishing where, you know, nowadays, of course, we're just used to, you know, seeing people do it as a competitive sport or just for fun. But that is cool that they still do that. Uh, They still use surfboards for fishing purposes. Yeah, no. And uh, the Totoro practice is something that kind of took it. it it spread throughout the Andes because then you see uh, cultures around Lake Titicaca, some of the inner lakes um, in the mountainous area where they would build homes in the water on these floating spaces made from these reeds that would grow on the water. And, you know, you grow more reeds and then and that would keep building up your home and you have a home that lasts for a long time. Yeah, I've heard about um now didn't the Aztecs do something like that where they ha- also had the floating cities or was that just for the the Incas? No, the Aztecs as well in their capital they had the um the Chinampas, I believe is what they're called, and they were uh the system where um because they had a lot of wetlands, they would create some growing beds uh, amidst the more heavy marshy areas and they would hold them up with um 
walls made from reeds and other grasses and such and they will make these walls hold dirt and they could grow a lot of fruit in wetlands um, which provided them with a lot of water access for their plants uh, allowed them to grow a variety of different foods and it's a great way of using wetlands something that a lot of times we see as you know kind of waste property or something you can never work with Now, did the Mochi people have any sort of written language or was all of their, is all what we know about them come from, uh, you mentioned like the ceramics, the pottery, did they have any sort of like stone carvings they used or uh, how else do we know about their civilization and their day-to-day life? Mm-hmm. So they did not have a written language. Um, I should, uh don't believe any of the Andean civilizations had a written language. A lot of their communication happened through spoken word by speaking Quechua and a variety of other languages. And they, they have another system of communication where they use knots and strings um, to kind of record messages and amounts and quantities or whatnot. Uh, but reading that is something that we still have yet to figure out. We don't know exactly how <laughs> knots were used. Um, but apart from their ceramics, they were also they also embarked in architecture and they built huge temples um, throughout their cities and such. Uh, and within they also left some carvings and some representations of their lives, their battles and such too, uh, through those works. Yeah, that's interesting that they you said that they communicated with knots, and unfortunately, uh, so it sounds like we don't know anything about what the meanings were. Um, how did that work? Was it just like a, a string or a rope that had a certain number of knots tied into it? Or was there a different style of knot they used? Mm-hmm. So the process is called kipus. And from my understanding, is they appear to be like a necklace. So they usually have one circular uh, ring. And then off of that circular ring, they will have a lot of different strings coming out of it. And each one will have different numbers of knots in different locations and such. Uh, but it was like a collection of knots they would have on a line of strings. And it it definitely has some sort of meaning because you can see that the knots are intricately placed in certain locations. Um, but still, that's the rest of that is a mystery that I hope one day we'll find out. It's really cool. So with their uh, civilization, so sounds like they did establish cities, so they weren't very, they, they probably weren't nomadic. They tended to stay in one place. Uh raise crops, raise animals? Yeah, no, they also embarked in uh, agriculture and they had some fascinating irrigation systems. And this was a culture that I believe the timeline goes, they were around from about 100 after Christ to about 800 after Christ, maybe. Um, But they had irrigation systems and they grew a variety of crops. They grew uh, potatoes, sweet potatoes, yucca, which is kind of like a cassava plant. the variety of fruits, you know, passion fruits, guavas, guanabanas, a bunch of fruits that you don't hear about 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 much, very much about here because it's different climate, different weather. But um, yeah, no, it was fascinating what they did with that. Okay, so what do we know about mochi religion and cosmology? How did they view the world and the universe around them? Now, specifically to the mochis uh, culture regarding their uh, cosmovision. Uh, which is what the Andes refer to as a worldview. That one's kind of very limited, um, but we do have uh, some ideas of what the worldview was uh, based on other religions as well that were in the area. And because uh, even though a lot of times 
people grow up hearing that most of Mesoamerica wasn't very connected, like the Aztecs and the Incas never made contact. That was actually false. A lot of them did make contact and they traveled all over. So there was a lot of like influences of similar ideologies. Um, but I, I, I actually, I'm spending some time studying um, the Andean worldview because it's, uh, I, I think it has some great lessons to teach us, especially with climate change and, and reciprocity. That is their uh, law. But with that worldview, a lot of it is not really about good and bad. They don't really have as much of a, um, not a moral compass. They don't have a, um, an idea that if somebody is bad, there's like a, there's really repercussions for that. It's more about the fact that if you're bad, um, if you do something that might be considered bad, you become more chaotic, more confused, more lost, more stressed out, and you're out of balance. And that's more of the idea what they have is, are you in balance with the world around you or are you out of balance with it? And a lot of the cultures, a lot of the stories that we see from those cultures um, do talk about this idea that you have to be in balance with the world and that a lot of you know greatness comes from surrendering to that balance. And, you know, you see a lot of other cultures and religions around the world talking about surrendering to the greater flow of things. And they were humans just like us. You know, they just interpreted it in different ways. Do we know if they had a concept of like a an afterlife or was it mostly uh, just the – because I found it was fascinating. You were saying that it seems their belief was that if you were doing something you weren't supposed to or going against the natural order of things that you would start to feel guilty or that you would suffer some sort of mental or emotional uh, turmoil from that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, they, regarding the aspect of afterlife, it wasn't really um, like an aspect of like after this world, I'll be entering another world. For them, it was more of an idea that um, kind of like reincarnation, where the world that we have here is um, is the same world that will be shared by our children and the same world that was shared by our parents, and it's kind of just of a cycle. Uh, there are some stories from ancient Andeans where they talk about the fact that I am creating, like a, a person will speak about their life as, I am creating this life here for my father, because they understood that... Um, you know, their fathers did that for them as children, but going through the cycle of life of, you know, birth and rebirth, they understand that even though I've been caring for my father by caring for my child, I'm also kind of caring for my father because he's still passed on through our generations. Um, and this kind of helped with, um, in some ways, not really creating like an idea that I want to avoid doing bad things in this life because I want to avoid maybe going to hell as some western ideas see it but it was more about i i want to live in balance because that kind of helps create balance in this world for when i return to this world for when other people that i love return to this world if we create it with harmony it's easier for them to live in harmony as well so yeah that sounds um some of that almost sounds uh similar to like taoism and buddhism and some uh some Eastern religions. I have a degree in religious studies, so I find stuff like that interesting. Yeah. No, I find that stuff to be so fascinating. And I've read like the the book of the Tao and it's 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 simple, direct, but even that one kinda helped me provide with with additional perspectives that I think also helped me understand and the cosmovision as well more. 
so the as far as how they viewed uh the universe around them did they because a lot of times in religions there's different models like in northern europe the idea of the world tree or uh other like the the biblical world they usually picture the earth with the uh like the the firmament and the heavens above and then the underworld did they have any sort of cosmological models that we're aware of yeah um and actually uh, the moshe along with a lot of andians saw the world also kind of split up into three worlds um into the upper world of the heavens they usually connected that not so much as a heaven you can see but as the world actually up there uh and the animal that best represents that side of it is the condor they saw the condor as a as the bird that connects our world to the upper world because it was the bird that would fly up you know thousands of meters up in the air and uh almost like he could disappear into the clouds so for them it's like yes he's going to the heavens um additionally they lived uh with they had uh, the idea of our regular world too being one of those worlds um represented by Jaguar, um and was a world of strength and a world of life and that's the world we live in and then they had an idea for an underworld as well uh which was often uh, related with the snake the snake was goes underground and it was also kind of like a messenger for the underworld uh for that um now i don't know specifics for the mochas regarding like the relationship between one world to the other uh but i do know that other andean cultures saw it that um like if you were not so much in harmony you might end up in the underworld yes but that was not like the end all to be all like that was a space where you had opportunities to come back to this world and eventually make it to the upper world as well so yeah, again, that sounds a lot like uh, Hinduism and Buddhism, where there's this belief of uh, how, you know, if you die, but, you know, there's still a chance you can come back and still achieve enlightenment and escape the cycles of rebirth. Uh-huh. Now, do we know if they had any sort of creation myth um, or how they viewed the creation of the universe? Yeah, Um Again, I don't know about specific to the mocha, but I do know that a lot of Andean cultures um, were, uh, they believed in the creator god, Viracocha, uh, which is something I found very, very fascinating to the fact that this, a lot of cultures kind of see a figure, a creator god being the one that gives them life. Uh, but for them, Viracocha was the creator god that um, created the sun and the moon and well, they and then the sun and the moon ended up creating more of the earth and have those connections. Um, something I really enjoy about Veracocha, though, is that it's a figure that you can see it in some of the earliest and very earliest of like um, just ruins that are left from these ancient cultures. And it's figured as a large creature with like the sun coming out of his head. And usually snakes running down his face, kind of like rivers signifying the water that flows from him. Um, but that is, yeah, that is the creator God. They have that idea as well. Okay. Now, sometimes in different types of folklore and religion, there's different themes that we often see that are pretty common. Like uh, if you look in like folklore, for example, well, I guess the best way I can... If you're familiar with uh, Joseph Campbell and the monomyth of the heroic initiation, how there are certain uh, themes that are common in these legends, like the descent into the underworld, receiving assistance from some sort of mentor figure, receiving some sort of magical gift, uh, 
the atonement with the father god or the mother goddess or the ogre mother figure are there any sort of common themes or motifs we see in moshi religion and folklore um the one moshi uh, story that that i would talk about the most just because it's one of the most prevalent is the story of ayapag um and in that one he does go through a moment where he goes to the underworld and at this point he does meet a shaman owl goddess and the owls were also seen as creatures of wisdom and um and she also embarks with him you know um not really any special powers within the story at this point but like the gift of healing the gift of healing for him um and so there is that there is a bit of a the same aspect of the of the journey of the hero as you've mentioned but at least with the story of Ayapayak, um, um we can go into a bit more uh, with the next question over this one but it, the trajectory is definitely different than most stories which is cool okay so it does have so if you were to look at the legend in the context of uh, campbell's idea of the monomyth we'll certainly see some parallels but they're not always in the same order that Campbell usually put them in. Mm-hmm. And maybe not, and yeah, the order might be a little different, but also the goal of the story, I feel like it changes. Um, that this may be also a, but from my understanding um, is that a lot of those heroic views are regarded as the hero is seeking, uh, seeking out some sort of like self-validation, some sort of glory, or not even for, if, not even for himself, for his community. Um, and there is some of that here. Um, but uh, also I feel like it changes too. Um, but yeah, I can tell you more about the story if you like. That sounds good. Yeah. So let's move into the story of an, I apologize, it was pronounced I or AI APEC? I APEC, I believe. I pronounced. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Again, it's ancient languages, so could be different. Um, now, the story that I, I'm going to share with you is a story of Ayapai that I found um, as presented by a uh, museum's um, uh, ex- exhibit on Andean gold and the golden empires of Peru. Um, but in that, they share the story of the mythological superhero Ayapai, um, who is a leader of the Moche, who farmed the green fertile valleys of northern Peru. Now, the story goes that as the sun sets, um, as it does one time, Ayapai becomes alarmed that his land will be enveloped forever in total darkness, and he's determined to then retrieve the sun so that there could be more sunlight and more warmth and more energy for his farmland and for his people as well. So he embarks on a journey, and the journey that, that, they, uh, that we go over, it kind of helps to characterize the Andean circle of life. Uh, through the journey, he travels to three worlds, uh, facing formidable, formidable challenges. He gains superpowers, sacrifices his life, and returns home reborn, ensuring the continuity of life. So Ayapayek, um is here in the Mocha land, and he sees that the sun is setting. So to respond to this, Ayapayek gets atop his uh, buzzard, a bird that flies out, uh, with his magic lima beans and his friends by his side, which include a lizard and a dog. Um, so Ayapai was very unique, very connected with the animals around the area, that they were his friends, and they helped him go on his journey. So up atop the buzzard, they fly into the mountains where the sun is setting behind them. Uh, but upon getting there, 
um, they discover that the sun has already left, and they chase its fading rays up, over to the edge of the ocean. And it makes sense, as you see, a people that live among the valleys of the mountainous area, if they go above the mountains, they see a huge ocean, and their imagine, imaginations can only tell them so much about what it's about. So following the ocean, um, Ayapayak encounters the crab, who is considered the guardian of the entry of the sea. Now, Ayapayak is a young, strong, mature warrior, and he fights the crab, but does not kill him. Instead, um, he leaves him to let him live so that the castration will bestow upon Ayapayak the power of strong, hard legs. With the superpower, Ayapayak can clamber over the rocks of sand and follow the sun into the world of the ocean. So now we have our hero entering the ocean depths. And as he enters deeper into the ocean, Ayapai confronts the Strombus, a giant snail with a large spiraling conch shell, uh, also referred to as the Potutu. And this allows him to uh, communicate with gods, uh, but it also holds the perpetual natural uh, cycles of life. And something very peculiar about this specific uh, reference to the spiraling shell and the circles of life um, I've read about other cultures throughout the Americas that also refer to as that weaving, as that like circular pattern that you see in shells and other natural elements, uh, sort of like the a weaving aspect that was left to us by our creator God. And also you can follow that same pattern to do some... Um, some uh, knitting practices as well, and that some other cultures use that to make bags and such and other products. But after defeating the snail, Ayapaya evicts him and climbs into the conch shell, covering himself in this invisible, invincible armor. And now that he's defeated two creatures, he has more power, he dives, he dives deeper and deeper into the oceans and confronts the most powerful deity of the sea, the fearsome decapitator, part shark part ray, and part sea lion. But Ayapayak is weak and uh, from fighting and greatly aged, so he's no match for the decapitator, who grabs his head, swiftly slicing it off with a knife. And here we see our hero greatly defeated, um, <laughs> despite all the journeys and all the successes that we have seen. But um, now that the hero has passed away, he must leave the land of the living. Uh, but supported by two of his birds, a booby and a vulture, he descends into the land of the ancestors, referred to as the underworld. And here is where he meets this um, sh shaman owl, but also Mother Earth. But what the uh, the shaman owl does, um, they help heal Ayapayak. And as said in the story, um, Pachamama also, uh, Ayapayak unites with Pachamama, the earth and fertility goddess, whose fem formidable female powers make him whole again. And fertilized by Ayapayak, the Pachamama gives birth to the tree of life with germinating fruits, and life is guaranteed to continue. So despite his long journey trying to achieve greatness of the sun for his people, he still gets defeated, but that's not the end of the story. Even after being defeated, he's still able to connect with nature. And in that process of connecting with nature, he's able to still bring life and security for his people uh, despite that. So it kind of helps, in my opinion, to depict a journey of life that sometimes a lot of people find themselves in where we're born um, and sometimes we compare ourselves to a lot of the journeys that other people have done. 
and that sometimes motivates us to go on our own journeys of success and grandeur. Um, and some of us do, and some of us, you know, create great adventures and great stories out of it. You know, I don't know if any of us have defeated any crabs. Um, <laughs> definitely not the capitator yet, but <laughs> but uh, but despite it all, you know, even after all those journeys of of grandeur and great fights, um, there still comes a time where you're gonna grow weak, you're gonna grow old, and at that point, life still goes on. So, what do you do next? And the story kind of nicely puts it that even when you feel defeated, you can lay back down with the earth and the earth will heal you and it will continue on as long as you also work on healing it. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I understand what you, uh, how you were saying before, how the, a lot of times the environmental issues that we talk about, how it does, it does kind of lead back to these ancient civilizations because you know, they, there was more of that emphasis on oneness with nature and uh, being able to conserve the land so that it can provide the, uh, the food and the sustenance you need. I thought, I liked the part of the story we're talking about the descent into the ocean. I mean, at first I thought, okay, that sounded more like the, you know, descent into the underworld that we hear about in a lot of stories, but I think it could also be symbolic of the abyss because a lot of times in ancient cultures, the ocean or is in the embodiment of chaos. And I think it's for one of the re they probably saw it like that for one of the reasons you mentioned how, you know, when we look at, you know, long ago, when we only knew so much about the oceans, you look at it, you could only kind of imagine what was below there. And I think it would be interesting to see if some of the ancient people were to know some of the things about the ocean we do now, you know, how would they view that, you know? Exactly, exactly. Because you see them talk about certain species with Grand Tour, and even I grew up, and I grew up across the sea from the ocean. I remember even living with stories about these wonderful creatures that sometimes they saw, you know, giant squids and such. And later in life, you hear more about them being real, and it just makes it also much more fascinating to have all that. Um, but it would be also awesome to see how they would um, interpret more of like the world that we know, the more of the world that has been recorded and has been shared with one another, and how that, how they relate to it. I think would be fascinating. Are there any other major stories from Moshi folklore or religion that you'd like to share? Uh, specific to the Moche, not that I'm aware of. Not too many other um, stories that I've heard from them. Uh, I'm hoping to find more with time. But I do I do want to talk a little bit about another book that I found that, and it's called the Wadochiri Manuscript. Um, now, when we're talking about the lack of the written language, uh, the Wadochiri Manuscript actually came to life after the effects of colonization. So some Andeans had learned Spanish and had learned the Spanish half of it, and they were able to use that as a way to kind of record the sounds of their language. But here's a book that was written, and it talks about the Andean relig uh, the religion and their view of the world and everything. Um, and it was it was created because a Catholic priest had asked an Andean person to write out their language and their religion. It was later used to kind of help shift um, views of the people uh, from the Andes to more of a Catholic viewpoint. But um, it was done because there were similarities. You were talking about you know the idea of you know heaven the earth and hell we, they had idea of the three worlds and that was used as a way to kind of help turn their religious views into a mixed view with catholicism 
Um, but the story, um, I have yet to work to the book, and it's a lot of its stories are still kind of left in a um, in a masquerade of how to interpret it because they are spoken with a completely different um, concept of the way life goes on. That's where I heard the story. Uh, that's where I read the story of the um, of the son who was getting taking care of the world for his father. You know. Um, just emphasizing that idea that it's all just a cycle. Um, but that's a wonderful resource. I'm hoping to learn more stories from that. Maybe I can share more in the future as well regarding the other cultures. Um, but other fascinating stories, other very popular folklores, um, Unfortunately, and not that I want to speak of unless until I have more certainty that they're from these cultures, because I also see that a lot of times the stories that certain folklores are mixed in with like the folklore of other Mesoamerican civilizations and such. And I think it would be nice to kind of have more clarity of which ones for which. So, so over time, as as uh, archaeologists and anthropologists have started to study these ancient cultures, they're legends have become intertwined. So now it's just a task of deciding, okay, what's, what's genuine and what came from a different uh, culture. That's uh-huh, uh-huh. a problem that I see a lot. Um, I doesn't bother me too much. I still like the idea of having some interpretation of their stories to work with, to try and understand them better. Um, but it's also about trying to find, I do want to do my best that when I share stories out, I find the most genuine story I can that can give us a more genuine look into how these people saw their existence in this world. Because it's the same world that we share now, and a lot of the issues that they face are the same issues we face today. Um, even you were talking about you know, how you see the connection with climate change and such. Uh, but a lot of Andean cultures, they had their civilizations ended because of climate, climatic changes from droughts, from floods. Um, I should believe that the Mocha civilization, one of the top theories for the end of their civilization, was because of floods from a very strong El Nino um, event. But then this kind of developed a, a group of people that were very in tune with how to deal with climatic changes. And then you see some of the later civilizations like the Incas, who were like the last formable civilization in South America that created, you know, their temples, like Machu Picchu was created with the intent that even if a flood rain happens, that water would just be able to wash through the city without causing landslides that would destroy the city. And it's still standing there hundreds of years later. So they had some knowledge that we could use today. (laughs) So obviously they did something right. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, it's fascinating because the way they did it, they would create the terrace farms and they would bring in sand and other materials from all around the country to build these very high quality, you know, temples. Yeah, it's amazing how some of these ancient structures do still uh, stand after all these years. And, um, you know, which is nice because it gives us a, a glimpse into their past and depending on what type of artifacts that archaeologists find there gives us a glimpse into their daily life and what their beliefs may have been. And when you're talking about how we have to be aware of the climate change, it brought to mind this uh, saying from a geologist. I do not remember the guy's name, but it was like civilization exists with geological consent. And what he was trying to get, the point he was trying to get across is how, yeah, we do really have to know 
how the earth and how the climate works because, well, if we don't necessarily understand all that, it's eventually going to lead to our ruin. Uh Um, You know, of course, in in places where there's earthquakes, it's forced us to adapt, you know, find ways to build buildings that are better able to withstand earthquakes. And I'm sure they do this in a lot of coastal regions where they put research into how to, you know, how to develop buildings that are going to be able to better withstand hurricanes and severe storms. They do, they do. But even then, we can't always understand. We can't always predict every challenge that comes up. And I remember hearing about some of the cities that are built in, like the Pacific, um, like the Philippines area and such. Um, and some of those cities that are built, they're built over ground that was very that is uh, more. It's not very compact yet. But then they built cities on top, and the weight of the cities helps push the ground and compact it more. And then you have cities that drop in elevation under sea level way faster than, than they expected them to because of this lack of planning. And I, I, I like how you mentioned that because, uh, especially what you, the geologists say, because I remember reading about the Kogi people and they have this process where if a person within their community wants to create a pot, like even a clay pot, they have to ask for permission from their elders to do this thing because the elders understand that whatever your clay you're getting for that pot is coming from somewhere else else on the earth already doing its job. You know, you hear about even places where coal gets mined out, but then you see arsenic being let out. And a lot of times, you know, we use biochar as a way to kind of help filter arsenic from our waters. So it's like a lot of times we do mining operations and we remove stuff from the earth without considering what was that doing in the earth already in its first place for the last thousands of years. That is a very interesting perspective uh, when you talk about how getting permission to take clay because yeah, that clay was there doing something and yeah, you're taking it away. So not a perspective that you hear on a a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah. But it's fascinating. And it's really cool because actually the Kogi people, it has been a civilization that according to the records is still being active today. It's still active today. And they've been, they've been just in hiding for like the last like 1300 years. Uh, There's a cool book called the heart of the world. And it's a, a, a book written by a BBC um, documentary filmer, filmmaker that was reached out to by the Kogi people. And the Kogi people reached out to this BBC filmmaker and be like, hey, we want to tell the world the message. And the message was about, hey, let's care for our planet. Let's care for our rivers, at least. But then this culture tells, is able to... They have so much more of an, a deeper understanding of the ecological world um, even without all the technologies that we have today, you know? Well, I'd like to thank you for joining me today, uh, Joao. And before we leave, do you have like any website or do you have a podcast of your own or do you have uh, any social networking information you'd like to share? Sure, I'd love to. Uh, first off, thank you so much, Al, for this. I'm glad we made a time to meet uh, and thank you again for bringing light to these other stories of the world. Um, but yeah, if anybody wants to help support, um, I I have started a business called Incomerge, where I'm working on some clothes made with some of the designs of ancient Andean cultures. Um, the clothes are all made from like mostly uh, recycled plastic, about 95% recycled plastic. And uh, the profits go to a nonprofit I started called Ruta Verde. Uh, we're working on reforestation and working on just kind of helping heal the land as our ancestors did. Because we want to make sure that other people get to enjoy it as well. Uh, Yeah, thank you. 
Awesome. Well, thanks again for listening, everyone. Thanks for joining uh, me today, Joao. And until next time, everyone, stay strange and stay interesting. You have been listening to a presentation of Point of Insanity Game Studio. Visit us on the web at poigamestudio.com. Follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio. Look us up on Facebook and email us at POI Game Studio at gmail.com. <laughs>